Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guests you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. We are pleased to have with us today, Chuck Brooks. Chuck is a globally recognized thought leader and subject matter expert in cybersecurity and emerging technologies. He is adjunct faculty at Georgetown University's Graduate Cybersecurity Risk Management Program, where he teaches courses on risk management, homeland security, technologies, and cybersecurity. LinkedIn named Chuck is one of the top five tech people to follow on LinkedIn. He was named Cybersecurity Person of the Year for 2022 by Cyber Express, one of the world's top 10 cybersecurity and technology experts by Best Rated, a top 50 global influencer in risk and compliance by Thompson Rudders, Best in the Word in Security by CISO Platform and IFSEC, the second global cybersecurity influencer on Thinkers360. In addition, he has been featured in 2020, 2021, 2022, Analytica, Who's Who in Cybersecurity, and named one of the top five executives to follow on cybersecurity by Executive Mosaic. He is a GovCon expert for Executive Mosaic and GovCon Wire, cybersecurity expert for the network at Washington Post, visiting editor, Homeland Security Today, and a contributor to Skytop Media and for Forbes. Chuck, great to see you again. Welcome to the show. Great to see you again. A pleasure to be here. Thank you, Rebecca. You know, we've been on several different shows before in the past, but I always think your background is fascinating. So you can walk us through that because you start in poli-sci, then you got a little bit more in strategy, and then you became the thinker and we're on the hill. So I'd love to hear that story. Sure. I'm happy to tell it. It's, you know, when I started, when I went to college, which was way back, we didn't even have electric typewriters back then. So let alone the internet. So, you know, like every other kid, I was interested in the, the global scenario, what's going on. And also it was a liberal arts school, small school in Indiana called DePauw, which I loved, by the way, it was only a couple thousand people. And, you know, I was from Chicago originally and sort of go back into the Indiana heartland where all the farms are. It was fun. You know, people were genuine and nice. So I enjoyed it. So poli sci in English were my focus there. And uh, then I went immediately to uh, University of Chicago and studied international relations and particularly more in the national security realm with uh, Albert Wallstead at the time was teaching and uh, national security was the focus. And again, it was just now beginning for electric typewriters there. So, uh, you know, all my exams are not like my daughter's now where they can edit and do stuff, but you know, it was, you had to either write it or type it. And that was it. So uh, cybersecurity wasn't there yet. And I came to Washington, D.C., um, and, and it's a typical Washington, D.C. story. I went to some party. I befriended a retired general who is uh, also former deputy director of the CIA and former head of DIA, Lieutenant General Danny Graham. And he said, would you like to do some writing for me? And I said, sure. You know, I'm very excited. Wrote some stuff on strategic uh, missiles, high frontier, SDI, all that stuff. And he said, you're doing a great job. Would you like to serve in the Reagan administration? I said, yeah, that would be really fun. And so I, I got an appointment to assist the director, uh, to, uh, working under Richard Carlson, 
Uh, you probably know his son, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> but uh, Richard, Richard uh, is a very nice guy. He was a head of Voice of America. It was still the Cold War. And uh, not a secret now, but a lot of the stuff and the communication activities and different language stuff, which was then by shortwave radio, it wasn't even you know the internet yet either. And they were weighing computers now that I'm working on. So uh, I worked there for a while and got picked up, worked on the Hill for almost 10 years doing technology and security issues. And you see the, the evolving capabilities of the technology back then. Then people were starting to look at, you know, the implications of all these new emerging technologies and the new revolution that's coming ahead, but not quite. And then uh, I got a call and said, would you like to be a part of a big startup? And the big startup happened to be DHS. So uh, that's really when I think I could say my cybersecurity career, because I was hired as a, in legislative affairs to help set up and, and create two directorates. One was a science and technology directorate which is still around. And the other one is a domestic nuclear office, which was eaten up, I think, by S&T. And so my, my role there was to work with all the SMEs and create all kinds of stuff. It was mostly chem, bio, rat, nuke, explosive focus initially, but there was a strong cybersecurity element. And it was just the beginning where everything was getting connected. So I, I worked on those issues, prepared a lot of briefs and stuff, and got really, you know, just really into the area. And uh, when I left, then I just followed that career path, you know, first with SRA International, which is now GDIT, where I did a lot of work there, and then uh, Vice President of Homeland Security for Xerox, similar kind of thing. And then most recently, I retired out of General Dynamics Mission Systems, where I was doing a lot of uh, growth strategy for cybersecurity in that role. Again, you know, it's changed so much working and working from everything in with architecture, coding, everything over those years mostly on my own, but also working with the IT shops and stuff. I learned a lot. So I didn't come from the technical background, but you know, I think I caught up. And, and now, as you mentioned my thing, I'm, I'm doing my own, my own thing, teaching and doing consulting, which is fun. But it's, it's an interesting career path. You're right. And I, and I think, you know, people are, are mistaken when they think that, you know, you have to be a, a coder just to be in cybersecurity. I'm teaching courses. A lot of these people are have a technical background, but it's really become a, an industry that requires everything, particularly management understanding of the intricacies, the policies, there's sales and marketing, of course, really you need expertise and you have to know the, the technologies there too. And then, you know, all the operational as aspects of cybersecurity. So it really is just like any industry now, it's, it's not limited to one thing. It's very broad. And now with the emerging technologies coming on board, it's even broader. You mentioned the Reagan administration, but what was the other administration you worked under? Uh, the Bush administration under DHS when we set up, first for Secretary Tom Ridge, and then for Secretary Michael Chertoff. So I stayed there for, for two secretaries. And I, oh. I kept my ties. I've reacted with DHS still. And it's fun to see the, you know, the, the change. And now they're DHS CISA, of course. But, you know, the focus has really changed from the counterterrorism focus to the cyber focus there, too, in terms of at least funding. <laughs> That's great. So I just tell people, it's, it's always interesting when you're under different administrations. I, when I did the DOD work with NCI information systems, I was doing all the base realignment, all that stuff. So I was under ISEC doing a lot of that work. I ended up having Bush and Obama. And a lot of times when you have administration changes, the world can change very quickly Yes. Uh, in a lot of those projects. And But the one thing is, is that failure is not an option and you, you got to get her done. And so when people exactly. people say, well, how come you, how did you cut your teeth so quickly in technology and all that kind of stuff? Because I was 
basically kind of boots on the ground and some very hectic situations that you had to get her done and you got to figure it out and you can't always Google anything. You got to know how to read. Exactly. And you have to learn from others too. I mean, that's the other thing. There's a lot of institutional knowledge there and legacy that you build on as well as being looking forward, of course. But you're right about the policy. I think really it's interesting, mostly in the technology and cyber world, that, that's the least partisan of all the issues I've ever had to deal with, you know, because people are, are focused really on, on the application of the technologies and the threats. It's not so much, you know, who gets the accolades or whatever. It's really it keep us all safe. So it's a really different perspective, I think, politically, when you work in technology and cybersecurity. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes the project this might shift, but at the end, it's protecting the UDISs here and abroad. And that was the end of it. It didn't matter. No one ever asked yes. me what my political yeah. party was the whole time I did work there. You know, you're well known as being a thought leader looking at emerging technologies, things along those lines. And you said this publicly, the cyber ecosystem is in precarious situation. How do you see the advancements in artificial intelligence and machine learning? I know they've been around since 1960s and 1950, respectfully. But how do you see that helping and hindering security operations? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think it's precarious for a lot of reasons. One is is because we never thought of security first as either company or as government. And of course, the internet wasn't invented to be secure to begin with. So we're all going at this, you know, from the from the back end trying to fix things. But uh, the, the reality is that, as you said, artificial intelligence is not new, but some of the capabilities are new as, as you grow in supercomputing power and other things. And, and so I, I see that being a really key transitional aspect of cybersecurity for several reasons. One is we just don't have enough cyber expertise and people out there to do stuff, or at least they don't want to go into it. There's a global shortage that's huge. Second thing is there's just too much complexity out there and all these tools and, and be able to orchestrate them and run them. And, and a lot of people in IT shops leave and then there's no one there. So so artificial intelligence is, is an enabler, it's a tool, and it's basically used for, for helping automate things. So in that sense, it's really good for automating, you know, threat detection, looking at maybe uh, even identity aspects, you know, proving who is what, looking what's in the system, and maybe collating some of the data too, structured and unstructured. But it, it also has, you know, it's like every most technology, it's a dual edge because the adversaries and hackers can use it. And the reality is the hackers already have advantage. I call them criminal hackers. And there's a lot of white hat hackers too. But um, it's so asymmetrical, the ecosystem out there, because they have so many targets. You can look at governments, you can look at organizations, you can look at big companies. Of course, they're going to be targeted, but they have a lot more expertise and capabilities. But the small and medium businesses, which are uh, the bulk of a lot of what's out in the United States, most of them have no clue. They don't even have a C-suite expertise. They're easy to target, and they're targeting them now in a rapid fashion using these machine learning capabilities to scout for vulnerabilities and exploit them to mass send out phishing attacks. And of course, there's more sophisticated elements of them too when going after critical infrastructure. But you know, they're also state-sponsored, you know, which is a different reality too with the geopolitics changing. You know, you have the two leading countries in that, Russia and China devoting a whole lot of time to the digital aspects of cyber warfare and espionage and then all the various organized groups under them uh, that sort of do their beckoning for them, but also get paid very well. It's it's a really dangerous landscape. So they're using that, that technology and defenders have to do the same. And I think we're at an early stage where a lot of this is being ad- adapted, 
but we'll see in the next few years and, and in the, throughout the decade that artificial intelligence is going to be almost a requirement for any company or, or industry to be able to protect itself because there's just too much data, too many technologies, too much threat out there to, for, for people to handle it. Yeah, you talk quite a lot about quantum computing and and the dangers along those lines, the apocalypse. And I know that just a few years ago too, everyone thought, ah, you know, even although the, the new quantum computers are coming out of China and things along those lines, it's still many years away. What I've been wondering is now that AI has really taken off in fruition, I think now there's like a thousand different companies out there who are developing products. What do you think about the AI apocalypse? Yeah. What are your thoughts along those lines? Well, I mean, the, the risks are pretty high with both. You know, I, again, like there's there's a lot of people out there, including Elon Musk, that say that, you know, artificial intelligence is going to be our undoing. It's going to advance to such a stage that it's going to basically take over everything. You know, that may be true in the future. I don't think it's ever going to be sentient, maybe in my lifetime. Maybe it will. Uh, but what I worry about with artificial intelligence, the same thing is it's the humans using it for their, you know, using it, how they use it. You know, it's a tool again. And so, yes, it could have some apocalyptic capabilities with, with, with nefarious actors doing things and using it. You know, for instance, they could, you know, inject polymorphic warfare, well, uh, malware all over the place and disguise it and, and being triggered by biometrics. There's there's so many technologies and capabilities to fuse it with. So uh, I think artificial intelligence could be a very, very disruptive technology. The debate now, of course, is do we regulate or we don't regulate it? And, and you know, you know, obviously there's ethical considerations and then there's bias considerations in it, but it's really difficult to regulate anything, you know, let alone in the United States, <laughs> you talk about the globe. And the problem is, is geopolitically, is it we mentioned it, you know, the Russians, Chinese, Iranians and North Koreans are not going to regulate anything that's going to be advantage to them. So it, it's a, it's a one-sided thing when you, when you call a moratorium to start, you know, researching and do stuff. I think we need to still, despite the risk, we need to invest heavily in learning as much capabilities and in, in building on this computing capability as we can. And, and with quantum, it's the same thing. I mean, the, the quantum realities are, it's a race. We're working closely with a lot of allies on it, but China is very advanced in that they've already, done quantum communication to approve that at a distance and, and the technologies are not necessarily having one big quantum computer it's really using the, the the physics of it to do analytics and predictive analytics and there's a lot of different types of, of computers that that are like even photonic computers which are available now that could do similar kind of things so the fear there is that whoever gets that you know as you mentioned q day capability will dominate everything because it, first of all, it would decrypt everything that's been encrypted. And they'll also be able to have secure communications for everything they do and dominate every industry. So I see seriousness in both those AI and quantum. And then if you combine them, if you think about that capability, that just is, is really a frightening scenario. But you know, the reality is they're here, just like the nuclear bomb is here. You know, you can't stop researching and doing stuff. You just got to make sure that others realize they can't overtake you and you have to prepare to defend yourselves. Yeah. One of the, just because you mentioned it earlier too, we have a lot of startups and startup can be, you know, a stealth mode. So I just started and it could be someone who's 23 years old. Part of it is your mindset on, on being in that kind of growth or hyper growth or really not putting the time and effort into security, privacy, and compliance. I've seen it personally and I've heard from other people where it's like, you know, we 
we don't think the CISO is a critical hire. We have other things that are more critical than, you know, we deal with AWS or Google or another cloud provider and they handle all the security for us. I think that those end up making those companies prime targets for, like you said, nation states and things along those lines. What what do you see? I mean, when you deal with big financial companies, big health companies and things along those lines, they do have some other infrastructure and a lot of defense and depth in place. But we have this whole huge middle market that when you look at supply chain risk, because you do business with those guys, that's where I really think that we're going to be seeing a lot of breaches and a lot of spidering breaches happening. What do you see from your world? Because you do a lot in those emerging technologies. Yeah, Take a look I, at that. I agree with you 100%. I think the supply chain is still very risky. It's very difficult to to police the supply chain, particularly with, with companies that have a lot of vendors and maybe large vendors. But I'm particularly worried you mentioned healthcare, and, and, and that's still a really largely targeted area, largely because when they don't have the budgets for security, they never focused on it. Like hospitals and healthcare facilities usually use their money to procure technologies for medical use. And then they have all these various networks, the devices themselves, but also, you know, the patients, the doctors, the nurses. And, and so it's really, you know, a sieve for a lot of uh, hackers to go after. And they do, and they're using ransomware, a pretty prevalent, many, many attacks, a lot of them not disclosed just because they get paid and they have no morals. And, and I know there's a lot of people coming trying to help the hospital, even even pro bono, but it's very difficult to catch up. So I think, you know, that area, education is another area, and then financial. But you mentioned really the, the, the crux of it, which is still, again, the, the small, medium businesses that just don't understand the implications and, and think, well, I'll go to the cloud, I'm safe. But your data is your data and you got to protect it and you're responsible for it. And you have to have the mindset, if you're a company anywhere now, I think, that cybersecurity is is not a revenue issue. It's an operational issue. And if you don't have the capability to run your own operations and make sure that you're not, at least you have you know, resilience or be able to do some response if something happens, you're going to be out of business pretty quickly or your reputation is going to be ruined. And uh, right now, the, those those businesses, those small businesses are easy pickings for, for hackers. It's low-hanging fruit. They're going after them. They're doing a lot of ransomware attacks, they're getting everything and, and they're not getting prosecuted or caught. And so it's, it's uh, you know, this is where crime has gone from brick and mortar to digital now. And so, you know, companies need a wake up call and they got to take responsibility, at least very, learn the very basics of cyber hygiene uh, to protect themselves and maybe go out and get some outside expertise, but it, it's not going to change, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, I've been brought in more in one case in the last only 15 months where the company has been totally bricked and brought me in after the fact. And then when I started looking at the architecture, because I'm a security architect myself, it's like it wasn't architected to be a way that was secure and safe. And, you know, backups are backups. But if you literally, if they brick you out of even getting to the backups or they go ahead and they grab your credentials, that's where I've seen too. Let's go ahead and grab all the credentials instead. And therefore you can't even go to unlock those backups. What Then what are you going to do? Like you said, it's not getting those hygienes up front. What do you think that they should do to set themselves up for success? Because I would just tell you, when I talk to other CISOs and CTOs, CIOs, it's all over the place. I think it's extremely dangerous right now. So what do you usually recommend? Yeah, I think you have to start with understanding. Every industry may be a little different, but start with a risk management plan. And you know, if, if you do that, at least they're looking at the right things. There are plenty of them available. You know, NIST has, MITRE, all of them. But there are a lot of industry-specific ones, too. And then in that plan, you're going to do the basics, you know, which is first, you know, do an inventory of what's in your network, what devices, who's got access, 
then you're going to likely do penetration testing to see where your vulnerability is if you already exploited to do that. And then you really have to go through the all the basic fortifications of cyber hygiene, multi-factor authentication, which helps in a big way. And you can get around it, of course, if you're a really good hacker, but for most of them, they're not going to bother. They're going to go where, where it's the easiest to go. So multi-factor authentication works good, and you can do that with biometrics too. Then, of course, you have to consider firewalls, segmenting your data. So it can't be with, with different different certificates, so it can't all be taken at once. And then you have to look at, you know, training your employees, of course. And then very important is, is look at, you know, everyone's vulnerable. Anyone can get hacked. I mean, the best of the of companies have got hacked. Even the, a lot of the cybersecurity companies have been hacked. So expect to get hacked and have an incident response plan, a resilience plan in place. And, and then you'll be much better off. At least you can react to things quicker and understand the implications and keep your reputation intact. You do a lot of teaching. What do you find is the one of the biggest gaps in thinking out there? I know one of the things that I consistently speak about is I think critical thinking, being able to say the so what, what does it mean to the enterprise risk? And being able to say, if I can't Google it, how do I get her done? What do you see out there teaching? And what are you teaching the students that you teach to go ahead and get them to the next level to bring us into 2025-2030? That is really a great question because actually you've hit my philosophy is critical thinking is lacking in, in a lot of universities right now. It's everything sort of canned, you know, everything on the internet. You really have to and one of the things I do is is with my students is and I teach one course called disruptive technologies and organizational management is I have them operate as a CTO, select a technology, it could be anything from 5G to IoT to artificial intelligence, invent a company or take a real company, and then do a proposal of introduction of a new technology, and then the implications for operations, what's needed, implications for, for managing it, implications ethical, philosophical, whether it fits in the business plan, and do a whole analytical stuff for their own thought after defining what the technologies are. So it forces them to think, and they do that throughout the semester. And, and it's also a discussion is a key part about it too, because you're right, people forget the whole root cause element, and particularly in, that's, that's associated with engineering. And a lot of my students have engineering backgrounds. You know, you really can't look at something and look at the symptoms, you have to look at the cause of it. And that's what you need to do to have critical thinking. You can't just look at everything. Okay, well, the answer, according to chat GPT is this A, B, and C. And so I fooled around with that and in one class let them write stuff. And, and you can see, I mean, it, there's there's gaps there, particularly when it comes to cybersecurity because it's, it speaks in general terms and it's going with, with data. So data out there is already on the internet. So they have to be able to learn. And, uh, you know, I'd love to see more of that. I'd love to see, you know, more focused education on the problems with technology we have now because I think a lot of universities have just ignored it. And... Uh, really in a new era. and uh, We have a whole generations now growing up. And it's interesting to watch what's happening, how they, they operate. Their phones are an extension of them now. How they social media dictates how, how they communicate and who their friends are and how many likes they get. It's really changed a lot of the brain waves, even the brain thinking, how we're wired, and, and the attention spans of people. Everything is now an infographic or a clip. You know, So it's a world that's going the other direction, but I think we need to get grounded. And if you get grounded and understand, you know, that this is where liberal arts education comes in, is I think, you know, you need to look at all the implications, you know, the philosophical, the, the political, everything, 
when you're looking at issues and technologies and, and, and try and throw away your biases too. look at things from a, from a clear perspective. Don't, don't accept anyone else's just because it's written. And so, you know, hopefully my students seem to enjoy it because of a different kind of perspective, you know, put, put them in charge in a sense, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is what I've learned. And a lot of them have really picked topics they knew nothing about and became really engulfed in them. So that's, that's at least in a nutshell. <laughs> I can go on forever about that, but that's, it's a, it's a great topic. A great question. I think it that always resonates with me too. That's how I naturally think. And just because you brought Elon Musk into the conversation earlier, I think that's kind of like where he goes to where not only is he thinking about doing this technology, technology, but should we use it? If we should use it, you know, what is the best way to do that? And how can it be meaningful and impactful to the most amount of people, not only about the dollar? And I think too many things get driven by a dollar. We talked about companies, about whether it's set and forget it, just pick a framework, any framework, just go ahead and do a policy and procedure, check the box. But it's not looking about what we're trying to ecosystem. Bad guys are out there. They just have to be successful once. We have to be successful all the time. Yeah, that's right. You have a lot of years in leadership. You've had years where you know careers are spinning in and spinning out and then <laughs> having to get on to the next thing. So what resiliency, personal resiliency lessons have you learned that, you know, keeps you, keeps you engaged in the game? Because I know it can be very disheartening at times when yeah, people are in between yeah. gigs or finding their next love. What, what advice do you have along those lines? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, Washington, D.C., where, where I live now, is sort of notorious for companies coming in and buying an M&A and all of a sudden bringing their own people in. So that's a that's fact of life in this this world in terms of, of sort of the bigger companies. And then sometimes they, they know like they just don't want to be in the federal market or they want to do this. So you got to feel that you're expendable no matter, you know, the new CEO comes in, they bring their own people. But that's the reality of employment anywhere, but particularly in certain areas where there's a lot of competition. So uh, uh, I got used to that because uh, these companies that, you know, they, they go through different transitions. I knew you brought in with the CEO, you work for the CEO, you're the right-hand person or whatever. And all of a sudden the CEO is gone, <laughs> you know, so that happens and it happens in government too. It happens in every organization. So, so we're really talking about is having a resilience in your career. And the first thing is to, is to do is I think, you, you know, first of all, don't get dejected. There's a lot of opportunities out there. It's just, you know, may not be the fit at the time. And there's one, one door closes, uh, it's cliche, the, another one opens. But also I think nowadays you have to really sort of separate yourself. And I go back to social media too, is that you have to create an identity. So people know who you are. You should write. You should speak. You have to become authoritative in your industry, whether it's cybersecurity or whether it's automobiles, whatever it is, you know, energy. And then you have to interact. You have to network. You have to network both digitally and in person now that hopefully that COVID is waned enough. We go back to a lot of conferences and do stuff. But And then, you know, stay, stay active. You know, be involved in some of the associations that you can do leadership roles with or be part of the committees and, and you'll get great, great opportunities there. And you also learn a lot, you know, cause continue learning. I mean, I think the good thing about our industry is that there's a lot of camaraderie with cyber people that speak. We, we're never at each other's throats and we see stuff, you know, we're all trying to help each other and evangelize missions. And no matter what company you're from or where, and it's just a, you know a natural thing. Every conference I go to and I see a lot of the same speakers and our events and podcasts, it's all friendly. And uh, I think that's sort of unique to most industries. And I think it's because the cybersecurity people 
have a different kind of perspective. I think they have a more guarded perspective on, on the reality and the threats, of course. But I think they realize that that it's not competitive among them. It's a group effort. It's collaborative. And uh, just part of a, a cog. And, and the more we help each other, the, the better everything gets. So, you know, it, it's just really unique because I, I experienced it early on. And I said, you know, it's great because I've been in a lot of other kind of things where, where the, you know, particularly with when you're dealing with a lot of SMEs in certain areas, they like to argue. And you saw, I saw that in a lot of things with particularly people coming out of labs and stuff because they're glued to their project or glued to their invention. But with uh, most people in cybersecurity, particularly in, in the CISO roles, CIO roles, CTO roles, and others that just do a, a evangelizing mission, I think there's, it's just a different world for them. And I like that. So I think that, that gives me hope, I think, because I think there's people that are listening and directive. And that's why it doesn't matter who's in what administration when you're talking about cybersecurity. People will listen to you and talk to you and they'll be happy to do what you want to talk about. And it's great. Plus, I think it's now... In terms of the government, I think there's much more collaboration between NSA, DOD, and DHS than there ever was before they're at each other's throats, not sharing information. But now a lot of that has changed. There are barriers, but they're getting broken down. Our time has run out. It's been going real fast. What is the best way for people to get a hold of you for speaking engagements or if they want to engage your services? Sure. I think LinkedIn is the easiest place because I'm very active on LinkedIn. I have 102,000 followers now. And uh, I run a several groups there, too, and I have a newsletter. So that's the easiest way to, to follow me or just send me a message there. The problem with my email is there's just too many emails right now. <laughs> so I think it's a problem with all of us out now. You know, you get hundreds of emails. You can't. Sometimes they go into spam. You don't see them. But LinkedIn, you can't miss it. At least it's there. And it stays there until you remove it. So LinkedIn is a good way to do that. Machuk, thank you. You are a soulful CXO. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rebecca.